Last night, I was so fed up with reading all of these sort of heavy books that I'm reading. I'm trying to get through a number of them. So I picked up Ionod, Disgrace. Fantastic. Kötze. Yeah, that, was, that wasn't yeah. bad. Uh, and read half of it last night before falling asleep and then woke up this morning and... Uh, just half. You read half a book after we texted? Yeah. But it that was the thing. It's it's you know, it's 250 pages. It is beautifully written in language that just you know, and it is sort of fiction. So um it's such a relief once in a while to read a book where it just flows and it really flows. He is a skilled wordsmithy um, and then this morning I woke up because Alma's phone was on alarm because she's away doing her swimming lesson things for kids uh, and I woke up and I thought it was my phone I ran down to get my phone and turn off the alarm which wasn't sounding um, and then I started reading again but I have like well, 40 pages or so left because then I realized, oh shit, I have to get ready for you guys. <clears throat> so that's where I'm at. So tell us about Disgrace. In Swedish or English? In Swedish. Mm. I found it somewhere. Oh. I think it's a good translation. I'm, I'm guessing it's a good translation. Because it really flows well. Um, it's an... Um, uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's hard to get a grip of this man. And it's hard to get a grip of these... The way... People are. The oddness of, of people in the context of the culture. And this is a culture that is, is far from, from mine. And it's, it's just, you know, it's like, so lots of thoughts, sort of threads pop out in me as I'm reading. Um, but I haven't sort of finished digesting it. But it, it, it is on my Swedish books to blog about uh, book list. So I'll probably blog about it today or tomorrow. We'll see if it sort of sticks or what sticks. I've noted down three things, I think, which is sort of, I'm also reading The Women Who Run With The Wolves. Um, and and uh, there isn't a page where I don't mark stuff. And that is, it's just so heavily condensed, just heavy somehow and, and, and significant and recognition and, and new sort of avenues. So it's a totally different book. So it's lovely to, to just read. Um, so that's Disgrace. And, and uh, the uh, Women Who Run With The Wolves, that was one of the heavy ones. What? That's one of the heavy ones, yeah. yeah. What, are, what are the other heavy ones? The other heavy ones right now, I'm reading um, that 
book by Catherine Schultz on being wrong, which is not at all heavily written. It's, it's very humorously written, but it's still on a topic that sort of, you know, um, makes me uh, go into it. Uh, so it, it doesn't flow as easily at all. And then the other day, because I couldn't stand reading that book that night, I brought out the um, What Makes You Not a Buddhist, which is also one of these heavy ones that's not heavy. Um, but last night I just felt like reading something else. And I'm reading Sheltering Sky by oh, Paul wow. Bowles. Yeah. Anna gave us that one for our book club, so oh, great. in that one as well. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah well, Which is also a fiction, but... You can only a page a day. It's just too Precisely. <laughs> that one is, is, is fiction, but it's not, it's not one of those books that flows for me at all. Uh, that one is sort of even odder. Uh, um, yeah, interesting. I've just sort of gotten, I don't know, a fifth in or something. We were supposed to have that book club upcoming week, but we've postponed it for obvious reasons. You've coroned it. We've coroned it, yeah, mm. we did. So that's me into books at mm. the moment. Sounds like fun. It is fun. Mm. I do love my books. Caspian, what about you? How are you? I'm all right. Um, still feel like that, you know, a couple of episodes ago we talked or when i checked in i said i feel like an adhd kid on crack or at least my my attention span feels like something like that i still feel like that it's fucking horrible really um and the only thing that i i get any the only time where i get any sort of relief from that where i can focus over over time is when watching something or when doing something with my body um so i've been doing that a lot um started running this week which was good for me it was really nice um watching a really strange show on netflix that's um sort of paradise hotel with a twist and i'm usually not into any of that but but this is uh i can't remember what it's called but but they stuff a bunch of 20 somethings that are really fit and and supposed to be you know in the prime of their lives super horny they all have sex every day with different people um and in this retreat, they can't have sex. They get fined. If, Alma uh, has watched if, that one as well. Yeah. Um, so they have a price price pot of $100,000. And every time they kiss or, or do anything sexual, uh, money is drawn from that pot. Uh, and so everyone is punished. 
Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's just brain dead, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, it sounds like it. It's a lot more interesting than than I thought it would be, but it's still not above that, you know, red line bar at all. <laughs> oh, God. Don't you just love good B grade? I'm not I mean, sure this qualifies as B grade. Even. Well, even C grade then, if you like. I couldn't say, but I mean, just kind of mindless, you know. <clears throat> if, you, if you're really having problems, mindlessness is just... That shit. Who the fuck came up with mindfulness? I mean, what a dreadful idea. <laughs> <laughs> mindlessness. Yeah, now we're talking. Church is a sub-genius. Church of the sub genius. Well, that's actually a thing. Um, that's a foundation I want to start. I'm afraid you're late. Fuck. Mm. The Church of the sub genius has been in existence for. Ooh, it must be over thirty years. Um, quite a an interesting uh, little countercultural phenomenon in the United States. Um, I need some to convert. Some of it just plainly kind of silly, you know, um, but some of it really quite, uh, how should one put it, um, dangerously subversive. So, Dominic, what about you? Yeah. I'm um, I'm reading and um, and thinking and reading and thinking and then um, seeking out some B grade and then thinking and reading. <laughs> I've been um, I've been pondering different things. A lot of uh, sort of somehow a little bit in the context of. Um, uh, you and I, Helena, I've been reading different books by the same um, Swedish philosopher. Um, and I've been reading this uh, text of, of uh, Jorna Bornemark on Mechtilt von Magdeburg. And she's a, uh, a German mystic. Um, and there's a, a kind of interesting subject or an interesting arena for me around these female mystics, European mystics, Teresa Vavilla and, and Hildegard von Bingen and, and uh, uh, von Magdeburg. She's particularly interesting in that she, she's um, uh, something of a... She's a kind of an outlier in some ways because she comes from from uh, from money, which is not that strange um, for people that enter into uh, convents and so on to to come from money. But she she joins um, this uh, particular group of people called uh, Beguin, um, and this whole movement is 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 significant in that um, it significantly 
um, challenges and undermines some of the uh, uh, misogynistic tendencies within the church. And the, the part of it that's, um, that's really quite interesting is that um, the church was sending out um, male priests to attend to the spiritual needs of nuns in convents. And greater and greater numbers of women <clears throat> were developing significant interests in their own spiritual development. So the, the priests were starting to, they were starting to run out of priests, particularly priests with anything to say. Um, and the, the convents were often part of, of orders, uh, Dominicans and so on. Um, but the Beguin were, were not part of that same structure and moved around quite freely in towns, etc., etc. So they were much more of a kind of what you would think of in the, in the 19th or 20th century context as a, a, a worker movement. You know, it's like something that's far... It's it's more kitchen sink kind of stuff, closer to to home. Um, but she writes stuff that is really really interesting from the perspective that it, it challenges so many taboos, including uh, you know these kind of simple things of of women having spiritual lives, of having their own insights, of being able to generate. Um, deep and meaningful relationships with the world around them, their existences, uh, with the, the, the underlying philosophies, and of course, uh, meaningful relationships with God, and even, um, in her case, uh, uh, quite deep and instructive insights into the body, the human body, eroticism, pleasure, and so on. Um, and all of this <clears throat> happening, um, I mean, there were quite a lot of these, these, these institutions for, for women, particularly in, in uh, the Germanic world. And if you sort of place this into a broader world context and understand how many of these people lived in extremely um, difficult conditions, um, and that's the part that's sort of interesting for me in this uh, co-virus part is that midway through the 13th century, uh, midway through the 14th century, there's this emergence of the plague. Um, and mostly the idea that we have of the plague is this one-off event that sort of, it happens and a lot of people die and then it's over. But actually it carries on for like 400 years. Um, it just keeps re-emerging in different places, but the plague is never um, an event. It's, it's a continuous process, and although no, probably not pandemic in the sense that we describe coronavirus, endemic in certain circumstances and epidemic in uh, many, many uh, different iterations that just keep repeating in different cities, etc., etc. And of course, that it causes these these interesting effects which we spoke about earlier, particularly that um, because it's such a, a, a sharp reduction of populations, um, very often women are granted new positions in society that they weren't before. Uh, but that's one of the things, one of the other things is that, um, I mean, people 
abandoned cities. People abandoned country homes. Um, the overclasses uh, fled uh, partly, uh, and there are so many different conditions here. One of the main things is, is, is climate, that Europe froze and people starved. Um, and there was a lot of violence involved. Um, and there had been a lot of violence up to that point, but now it's kind of exacerbated. So um, feudalism kind of uh, uh, engendered some of the backlash against itself through external effects, um, which seems to me to be a, a really interesting echo of the stuff that we're going through now, um, except that we have vastly bigger populations, we have vastly improved connectivity, things are much, much faster. Um, and possibly uh, we, uh, we maybe have not quite as deep relationships as people had at that time with um, existential questions. We've sort of become quite uh, attached to our immediate gratifications. And that might just change a lot um, very quickly in the in the in the next coming months and weeks when you um, or, or years where we see for example uh, uh, armed protests in the United States during the last week that's big stuff you know, that we haven't had anything on that scale I'm not really sure quite the significance of it but it does seem to me to be um, interesting systemic shifts um, when people respond in that way. Um, and then the, 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 the sort of dearth of, of information that we receive from, from countries like India, um, China, um, any country in Africa, there's very, very little material coming through and I really, really don't think that that's because um, there's a lack of things to report on. Um, and you shared an article, I think, from the New York Times um, on, on uh, yeah, some comments in India. Arundhati Roy also published, uh, I think, in the... Um, Guardian? Yeah, it was in a few, including yeah. the, the Economist or something like that, quite yeah. oddly, um, to read her in a... In a publication like that, quite cool. Um, but, uh, dear Lord, the extent of the challenge is, is, on the one hand, quite astonishing. I mean, you know, the, the, the numbers being thrown around, and again, numbers being thrown around is part of our game. That's what we do. We sort of um, create this sort of state of, of uh, uh, hypnosis around... 7 trillion and uh, 80 billion and uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, and on the other hand, there's this reality that prior to corona, there's the commonly understood fact that poverty, hunger, um, destitution, homelessness within the constructs of the existing economic reality are entirely unnecessary. There's more than enough to go around. There's more than enough to go around. And so here we are again saying that, oh, we're in a worse situation than we were t before. Really? Are we that? How is that 
you know. I mean, for many of these people, that doesn't necessarily uh, match because they are, in the case of, of, of the Indian perspective, these are people who had very, very low-paying jobs, but jobs. So there was some sort of substance, subsistence level uh, uh, security involved, if you can call it security. And now most of that is, is, is gone. And the responses to it are often oriented around uh, security, state security. So there's violence, there's repression, there's uh, different kinds of, of responses that yeah, I don't remind one of very much other than the Middle Ages. And maybe not so surprising. We've been doing this for a long time. Mm. I blogged a little bit about this. Because um, I, I, I gave you the tip, Dominic, to listen to the On Being episode with... <coughs> poet called Ocean Wong. Yeah. Uh, which I listened to. I'm sort of on my third third time around and I just found it yesterday. So um, and in it one of the things that he points to is during his upbringing he was fascinated by the by the myth or the fable of Noah's Ark. Uh, and points to just this, when the apocalypse comes, what is it that we bring with us, that we want to bring with us into the future? And of course, what do we want to leave behind? Um, which is, you know, today in the situation we're in, a really, really apt thing to, to look at, to question, to wonder, to ponder, to reflect on, to talk about. Um, and if nothing else, perhaps at least try to answer on a personal level, um, which in, in turn will sort of inform the societal level. But I also sort of juxtaposed it with this New York Times article on, on poverty, because for me, you know, the reduction in this sort of mindless, eternal shopping patterns, this I need to have, 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 things that you have and hold on to for a day or a week or a month or a year and then you throw it away. Um, sort of this shit and stuff <laughs> cycle, which is one that I've sort of... distanced myself from quite deliberately in, in the past 15 years or 20 years, sort of, you know, from being a part of it to still being a part of it, but, but on a sort of from a further from the center of it. Um, and we realize, in, and then again, the numbers of the New York Times piece where it's it's like you know when when all of the clothes manufacturing and and dyeing and whatever it is that they do in Bangladesh just shuts down because nobody is buying the $5 t-shirts anymore um there's a shitload of people 
that just, like you say, they have the rug pulled out from under them and they do not have anything else to sort of live off. So it, it, it's just, for me, that's, that's the thing that I like. You know, I like this, I have sort of this thought, this idea, and then whoops, all of a sudden I have to do a tumble and or I'm, I, I'm doing a tumble and realized, oh shit, yeah, it's just never as easy as I, I would like it to be, right? Because stopping with a mindless shopping would be, wait, yay, it's great. And it's really, you know, deathly for, for the people who are at the bottom of that um, sort of hierarchy. Um, and they had numbers of 40-50% of unemployment sort of in sub-Sahara in that article as well. And you just go, whoa, shit. Because there's a lot of people there. Um, so it's interesting to To, to be, to allow myself to be in that dissonance, because it truly is, it's a dissonant chord that we're doing right now. And, and you just don't know, will the next one be as dissonant or will we have the release, right? Um, and, and I don't know. Um, it, it, I have the sense that there will be more dissonance um, that I won't be so lucky or we won't be so lucky that the next chord is the one that just, ooh, there we go, sort of back to, to the home uh, chord uh, of the piece. Um, but rather the dissonance will probably continue, which doesn't feel like something I would gamble on because I wouldn't get any return on it. <clears throat> you wouldn't get return on... If I gambled on it, nobody would sort of bet against me because, yeah, there will be dissonance, right? Yeah. Um, that's sort of the, that's the obvious next chord is the, another dissonant. Dissonance is the probable yes. scenario. Mm. Yeah, it mm. is. It would be, it, it feels very improbable that it would be the releasing core that would just bring it all back mm. to, to, to harmony again. Mm. Yeah, I listened to, <clears throat> um, I listened to a clip by Gary Vaynerchuk, whom I've been following for, I don't know, three, four years now. Um, and one of the devices that he, he uh, continuously says, one of the things he, he keeps coming back to is don't buy dumb shit to impress people you don't like. Um, That's sort, sort of, of the reinvested in yourself yeah. is his, his mm. um, point of view. One could argue just don't care about having as much money. Um, but he brought up a statistic or what we, a, a, an input he had from some friends who were in e-commerce uh, in the U.S. 
and one of his friends had had called him up and said, well, our shop is, is going down. We have such a high pressure right now. And and Gary just said, what, what, what the fuck? Why? How? No one, everyone is losing their jobs. You know, there, there's, uh, and then he realized that the U.S. had been uh, deploying these uh, checks for, for people who uh, don't earn enough money. I don't know what they call them, but, but some kind of just get a, a check from the state of a thousand to two thousand five hundred dollars, I think they are, something like that. And what he realized was that as soon as people get them, they go buying dumb shit to impress people they don't like. Mm. I mean, that's that's how fucked up the system is. Mm. You get money to survive and you go buying stuff off of the internet. With no delay. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's that's so for some people. Um, Enough people to to get the e-commerce sites to just go down. And of course, it's it's not all of the people, and it's not you know, but at the center of this this uh, phenomena that you talked about, Helena, that's the that's the truth. You get money, you spend it. What are you going to do with it otherwise? And why? I'm just wondering. Because the, the money is just such an incredibly loaded arena. There's so many dimensions to it. It's really worth digging into what it's for, what it means, how it comes about. Uh, what's its what's its value? What are you supposed to do with it? What's its function? Oh yeah, that's like opening up a can of worms. They'll just go woof, and there's worms all over. You could pick up any one of those and have an hour long conversation, right? And and still not get to the answer, because money is also one of the most personal things that I know of where everybody sort of have their very own personal makeup of, of what money means, um, which is just fascinating. Um, but one of the things that I've, I don't know, six, eight years ago or something, I was listening to uh, Ty Lopez being interviewed on London Real or something, a show that I don't normally enjoy that much at all. But, and Ty Lopez is, whoops, there, I'm back. Ty Lopez is, I don't know, multi-entrepreneur thingamajig, you know, words come out of him like, um, and this is a like two or three hour long conversation. And it is like being in a tumbler the entire time. There's just, just keeps on going, keeps on going. But one of the things that he talks about in this show that I really picked up on, because it challenged my personal 
sort of internal setting on what money is. And he says, money is a fuel unit. You know, you make, you, you need to have a certain set of fuel units to be able to take you wherever it is that you want to go. Maybe you need 10, maybe you need 500. Doesn't matter, it's a fuel unit. Um, sort of peeling off a lot of those layers that, that I put on it personally and those sort of the personal meaning I put on it. He just, it's a fuel unit, boink, nothing else, you know? And it makes sense that we can all sort of talk about fuel units and share fuel units and, and sort of, you know, make fuel units because I need this money, you need that much fuel units. Um, and taken in that context, I don't need more fuel units than what I have need for. Right? Because what's a warehouse filled with fuel units if I have no intention of going anywhere? Um, then it's just sitting there. And, and so I just went on a, on a spin uh, when he said that. And, and obviously I still sort of am because it's one of those things that I remember. Um, that's still with me. Whereas I think in, in my personal makeup, I am one of those. I would like to have that warehouse of fuel units for safety because it gives me the sense of safety. It gives me a sense of security and, and, and comfort, something to lean on. Um, but yeah, money is interesting. Yeah, for me, that, that's sort of where the analogy fails, because fuel units are always going to be useful. And I think the human condition is, is sort of divided in two. One is that the more we have, the more we use. So the more food you have access to, the more you eat. Um, most people and, and, you know, sort of speaking in very general terms. Um, and the second one is, I think we all, most of us can subscribe to having that, that warehouse of fuel units makes us feel safe. And it doesn't matter of, it doesn't matter how many fuel units you have in there. You're always going to want more to feel more safe. Yeah, provided your worldview is based on the idea that there isn't going to be enough. Precisely. Precisely. It's the abundance versus lack um, aspect that comes, comes sort of shouting down the aisle of that warehouse saying, there's lack, there's lack, you need more, you need that protection, you need to have that safety. That, that's, you know, stock it up because you just never know when there won't be more. And that's most definitely where I come from, the sense of lack. 
Um, it is what I've been brought up in. I, I have a hard time seeing that there's many people in the world who are brought up in, in something else other than possible sort of, you know, Amazonian tribes or, you know, um, well, I mean, basically the rest of us are, are, that is the story of the culture. Yeah. That is the story of the culture. And precisely what informs the, the utopian uh, narrative, continuously stuck in this idea that, um, that primitivism is some sort of uh, uh, model of redemption. That's, that's, that's where we're going to sort of Redeem come back to, to abundance. Yeah. That's where yeah. we're going to be, yeah. um, you know, what we always were meant to be kind of stuff. But I mean, it's it's interesting because this morning I was reading a a report on um, on a person practicing Chinese intensive um, farming or you know cultivating of stuff in the garden, and I sent it to to Dominic, and this lady had gotten eight hundred and fifty nine kilos of, of sort of produce at least, and then some, from a 100 square meter allotment in a year. So from April till November, 859 kilos, and then some, because she gave a little bit away and stuff. But, and this, about this, you know, people saying, oh no, you can't do that because you will deplete the soil. Whereas in order to do that, she is, giving back to the soil continuously, continuously. So not only is she not depleting the soil by removing that much produce, she is improving it. The soil today is way much better than it was five years ago when she started. So that sense of lack is, is in that sort of reference as well. You can't do that because you will deplete it. No, you won't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and stockpiling is about extraction. It's about depletion. There's a certain acceptance of that, that you take from one place and you put it into another place. I mean, the idea of the, the very idea of the stock market is that uh, someone loses and someone wins. The, the, the notion of, of wealth creation has disappeared largely from the, our, our financial world through um, the allowance of, of or deregulation of markets. So it's not about actually producing real value. It's about speculating on the potential for producing value. And the other end of that, that world, I mean, for example, we, we become very, very um, used to the the discussion about sustainability. That you've got to do things that are sustainable. And there's very little engagement with the, the basic premise of sustainability, which is um, that you should leave it the way it was. So it's a zero-sum game. Well, because 
the idea of sustainability is that you shouldn't deplete the thing. Yeah? And um, the, the other end of that scale, uh, which is more around regenerativity or uh, resilience, has to do with leaving it better than when you found it. So the, the soil building uh, 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 picture is one of regenerativity or resilience. Um, so for most people from a technical perspective, there's a, a kind of a, um, a, what would you call it, a scale from sustainability at level zero. So below zero, there's depletion. Then there's sustainability at zero. It's just what it was before. Um, then there's uh, uh, resilience. So you're creating more robust systems that can withstand greater degrees of, of pressure. And after that, you, the next step is, is, is regenerative practice, which, um, I mean, one of the, the sort of common phrases that come out of, of the corona uh, question is, is cascading failures. Um, that when you have such huge pressures on, a, on an already fragile system, that typically one uh, failure that maybe is not that big will lead to uh, uh, cascading failures, i.e. subsequent second, third, and fourth order uh, um, uh, systemic effects that create the image of a cascade, right? So that one uh, layer uh, supports a, a bigger layer, supports a bigger layer, and they're continuously feeding into each other into a total systems collapse. Now the other other way is also true. Um, this is uh, envisioned by Mollison's permaculture, for example, that he talks about cascading effects in the other direction. That that nature creates stacks of supporting relationships. There are very few single element relationships within an ecology. There's always stacked relationships where if one element falls away. Uh, usually there's a whole series of things that are going to support that. Um, so the one element falling away uh, is not necessarily a, a negative event other than that it may actually open up for uh, evolutionary development. There may be place for new things to, to emerge or to, um, uh, to, to, to establish themselves in that context. I've not given any thought to that way of, of defining or sort of putting in place sustainability versus resilience versus regeneration. I've not thought about it that way. I haven't differentiated between sustainability as sort of the the base level, right, where what is is and can, can, you, can continue to be. Interesting. And they're a little bit like the money discussion because this is also just fuel. This is also um, fuel to get places. 
And like with the extraction industry, when you respond to nature in, 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 in this way that uh, there's, there's an extraction premise, then you do result in, then you do have a result of desertification, for example. Um, that you can have massive overgrazing, that you can have uh, massively depleted soils. And these are not things that are impossible to deal with. There's this amazingly interesting uh, case study in the Lurs Valley in China, um, where they did a, a, a huge uh, regeneration project. We're talking about you know many square kilometers. Um, Everything China is big in numbers. Well, yeah, that as well. Um, where an area that's basically collapsing under erosion and des uh, desertification gets uh, turned into green um, environment again. Now, the, the labor intensity is huge. Um, there isn't any automation that fixes this stuff. Um, it has to do with careful uh, and, and literally careful hands-on um, caring attention to, to, to re-establish environments. But they, it is absolutely possible. There's, for example, the, the practice of um, holistic grazing, um, which most people have encountered through this uh, documentary called The Cowspiracy, um, which is kind of fun to watch. But um, it's interesting to look at the research around uh, holistic managed uh, uh, grazing that um, when you look at the, uh, the world before humans um, concerning soil, there are very, very deep layers of topsoil, of rich topsoil, which is the soil that this um, person in Stockholm is, is building to grow. Um, in some cases around the globe, pointing to nine meters of topsoil. Um, and the, the holistic management idea is that this is because of, of animal grazing, that animals graze and the waste is continually tramped into the ground and they move along, they graze uh, the, the, um, the grass to a specific level very intensively and under a very short space of time, but then they move on um, and leave that to, to grow again. And then because of this, um, there's this rich regenerative process that happens um, that results in very, very good topsoils, deeply mulched um, and, and, and very well decomposed, very rich in nutrients, etc., etc. Um, and that is exactly the opposite effect of modern agriculture, where you plow with heavy machines and you lay in a whole bunch of, uh, what do they call it, NPK mm. um, uh, fertilizers. Fertilizers. Mm. And two things happen that the, the soil, um, be, when, when, you, when you plow, um, you're basically plowing in air um, aerating soil and it, it creates a whole series of chemical reactions which speed up in the way that um, if you take the model of, of oil that 
it takes millions of years for the oil to be produced and then you pull it all out and it can't be replenished. Um, it's similar with plowing. So you, you're basically destroying the natural production of, of, of nutrients simply because you're plowing. But you have a very, very good harvest year one. By year three, if you don't lay in huge amounts of, of, of fertilizer, there's not a lot happening. So when these are, when these processes are dealt with in, in different ways, it's possible to rebuild these soils. At the moment, what we have is, is, is cascading failure effects in agriculture, where you have compacted soils, you have um, runoff of topsoils because the soil underneath is completely um, uh, compacted and the water can't get through, etc., etc. And the effects are. are the, 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 the positive effects, the, the, the resources kind of are reduced all of the time from nine meters to 30 centimeters. If um, even that. If even that, yeah. There's a documentary film that's available on the Swedish television site that's called Biggest Little Farm. Våran lilla bondgård, um, which is just the, the, it's cute, it sort of has, I was sent it by a friend and I thought that looks like a children's show, you know, it looks like a, a kid's program, but I watched it one day and sort of fell in love. But it also, there's, there's another, I don't know, on peak prosperity or something, a number of years ago, I listen to people from Happy Frogs Farm or something in California that are also sort of starting off in, 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 in farms where there's like no topsoil, you know, there's nothing, there's this much. And there's also then no possibility for the, the soil to retain water because this isn't enough. It just, you know, so there's compounded, like you say, cascading failures, because then you get runoffs and then you get erosion and then and so on. And how, how it is possible to rebuild this. So this happy frogs farm in California somewhere where, you know, their neighbors are suffering hugely from, from the drought, from the fact that it hasn't rained much, it's hot and, you know, and they spend enormous amounts of water and still the soil doesn't retain the water. So it's sort of waste. Um, and how they sort of, you know, they, they drip feed 20 minutes, two times a week or something. And then their soils just because they've gone from this to sort of, you know, and it just keeps on building. And it's for me, I, you know, I'm the optimist, I'm the hope junkie. It is wonderfully reassuring to once in a while find that sort of harmony to bring it back where it is possible. You know, humans as well. We are not sort of the scourge of the earth. There is no way we can be 
resilient or live in regenerative sort of habitats, but we can. Uh, we can sort of dock into that which, to, into that system where, where it is possible. Uh, which is nice once in a while to get that release from the disharmony just because your entire body especially when it's like when when you're in a office building or something and there's ventilation and all of a sudden it it turns off and you didn't notice it before but you notice it when it's gone because your entire body just relaxes that's the sense that I have when I watch like the biggest little farm is like oh just a little bit of that now and again is necessary for my mental sanity, I think. And that was actually one of the things that I thought when I was reading the New York Times piece that if if we compare it to to the plague sort of coursing through the world or at least Europe um, for hundreds of years even though the plague hit people and it killed people and you know, and there was there was famine, and there was cold, and and most people had a plot of land, or somewhere there was a plot of land, or they knew how they could make use of what was in sort of out in nature. But today, when we have people living in, I don't know, New York City, how many people live in New York City? You know, millions upon millions upon millions. And it's like, and then their Central Park. You know, it's like, that won't do. It's not, you know, not everybody today has somewhere to put their fingers in soil and actually try to make something work. And the same goes for a lot of the people in Bangladesh or in sub-Saharan Africa, that they actually live in places where they are, they don't have, they don't even have that sort of to fall back on. Which I think might make it a lot worse. If at least you have a couple of square meters where you can put some soil or some seeds in, or I don't know. There's something. But I don't know that everybody knows how to do that even. I hardly do. Mm -hmm. I fucking don't. No. I actually had that experience last weekend when we went up to, to my mom's husband's house in outside Multala. And 
you know, every time I f- we we go up there, I fool myself saying, oh, I'll just lay in the in the hangmat and, and read a book or just watch a Netflix series. And, you know, as soon as we get up there, there's just like a list of work and things to be done. And um, this time it was digging a, um, what do you call the strips that you plant potatoes in? Furrows? Sure. Um, we're digging three of those and we're picking up some, some wood for, for something that they're going to build. And... I just realized that that I've never dug anything really. Um, I had no no idea of you know what how what any of it. It was kind of nice, you know, for for that little while. Um, and I told told my mom's husband when we were off buying buying the wood that you know I I quite enjoy doing that especially with him because he he knows a bunch of stuff that that I for my life would never even want to learn. Um, and we talked a little bit about it, and he was like, "Yeah, well, you know, you can't. I've never had the opportunity to to hire someone to." redo my kitchen if I needed it. I've bought really cheap places to live and I've renovated them myself. And now I've got this wonderful house. I want to plant things. He's had chickens and he killed the chickens himself and cooked them cooked them for dinner. Um you know I'm no conception of how you would even how do you buy a chicken? <laughs> You know, I can't even begin to understand the whole process of of doing those things. I'd much rather live in New York and have that little piece of green Central Park and just be content with that, sharing that with God knows how many million other people. But that's the thing I, I realized that, you know, it might be kind of nice to, to stick your fingers in dirt sometimes. Not too often, but, but you know, every 10 years or so. I bought my first chickens when I was about um, six or seven years old. <laughs> I had Pokemon cards. Yeah, I, I had some cards too, you know. We didn't. We had some of these kind of sticker books, you know, where you kind of go and buy little baggies of stickers and then they have dinosaurs or something like that and you try and fill them. There were, there were some cards as well. I can't remember what they had on them. They had, yes, guns, tanks. What? Yeah. It's one of the great joys of living in a military society. You mm. kind of... Uh, up your knowledge of the hardware pretty early. <laughs> that and chickens. Well, I had this idea that I'm going to buy chickens, um, and uh, I'd saved up some money, and um, 
I took the bus into town and I didn't know anything about chickens at all. But I'd heard that it was a good idea to buy bantam chickens um, or, or chicks. So I had heard that there was this uh, you know, shop somewhere um, and I took the bus into town and um, I got there and um, I, I knew that I had to buy these bantam chickens and I, I wasn't really sure uh, what they were called. I'd sort of forgotten, you know. Um, so I went into the shop and I said that um, I wanted some, uh, uh, some chickens and that they were called Lofin chickens. And they said, they what? I said, yeah, they were, they called uh, Lofin chickens. Never, never heard of them. But definitely, these are very, very common chickens. Absolutely, 100% sure, you know, in my sort of typical manner. <laughs> yeah, but we've never heard of these. They are, they called laughing chickens. You must have laughing chickens. No, we don't have any laughing chickens, but we have bantam chickens. Oh, um, well... Um, that sounds good, so um, <laughs> I took home the, the chickens that I wanted um, and realized that I... Wait, 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 chickens. Well, chicks, you know, small, little, little Still ones. little, little yeah. ones. Multiple ones. Yeah, I took home... At uh, the age of six. Yes, uh, I did. Um, it might have been seven. Um, <laughs> so I took them home on the bus and... Um, that was great. They sort of uh, established themselves, and then um, I came home one day, and um, my my Saint Bernard had been playing with the chicks, and and they'd died. Oops. Sad story. And that was really difficult because I really, really loved the Saint Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> It was really kind of um, it's kind of challenging to understand that she definitely didn't mean to kill anything, um, but she was, you know, a uh, hundred times bigger than the average little bantam chick, and so they died, and I buried them, and then life carried on. I had chicken as well, but I did. I've had chickens here. We had chickens for two years. <laughs> Oops. Um, so I had, we had three chickens. So I have a permit to have up to five chickens. I'm not allowed to have a rooster, but I can get some chickens again if I want to. The first time, because the first year they didn't give any eggs because they we got them when they were this big. And then in January, I think, there was an egg and it was warm. Oh, wow. <gasps> the, I mean, that feeling is just amazing. Quite out of the ordinary. Just really, really cool. Um, 
So yeah, chickens. You have to get chickens, Caspian, otherwise you can't be a Buddha. <laughs> you can put them on the terrace outside your door. <laughs> but the, the thing for me is that I don't think that it's, it's such an issue whether you live in, in New York or whether you live in the country. Um, there's, there's more serious underlying structural problems that uh, don't really have to do with the, the effects. And the effects are urbanization or, uh, you know, living in high rises or whatever. Um, and obviously it's a good idea to try and deal with those things too. And there's been such a huge amount of work done in the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years around green cities, sustainable cities, all this kind of stuff where people are looking at, uh, you know, ways in which, uh, well, from just growing food on balconies to using entire sides of buildings to generate um, you know, uh, green organic uh, materials that are that fix carbon or that cool the buildings and all this stuff is is, is great. It's interesting and and um, probably quite worthwhile. Um, and that sort of thinking isn't really that dramatically new. Um, that probably at least in the last century starts with. Buckminster Fuller, Fuller and, and, and sort of works through, um, what is his name, um, Freire, Zeitgeist Man, I can't remember what his surname is, what's he called? Oh, come on, hang on, I'm going to look up his name, I always forget, Jacques, um, Jacques, Jacques Zeitgeist, did you watch the Zeitgeist documentary? No, well, it's it's kind of sweet, you know. You really should. Um, the Zeitgeist film series. Hold on for me two seconds. I just want to see what his name is. So there's this. Um, Fresco. Jacques Fresco, yeah, not Frere. Jacques Fresco. So. He's like a Buckminster Fuller kind of figure, designing, testing, innovative, and, 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 and creating this sort of idea of sustainable systems, possibly even regenerative systems. Lots of uh, cool design domes and, you know, stuff that sort of makes you think that it's... These are, these are potentially possible designs for that utopian future possibly without the utopian bit, but something that's workable. Um, and we, there's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, an obvious thing that humans should include those activities in its pursuit of so-called civilization. Um, but the civilization model itself, uh, as the underlying foundation, um, is regrettably, evidently doomed to, to collapse. All of the others have before us, and nothing that we're doing yet in this one has indicated that we're not going to repeat that model. We haven't moved on to something other than the extraction thing, 
and even if we're talking about sustainability, often that sort of stops at that point of designing new buildings. There's an amazingly interesting movement called the cradle-to-cradle design movement. Um, And there's some basic tenets or principles that I find so valuable. One of the things that they point at is that less bad is not good. So these kind of um, carbon mitigation processes are typical less bad things that we call good. Um, You know, wind power we call good because it's less bad than fossil fuel. Um, And so on and so on. Eventually those gaps just kind of get smaller and smaller and smaller until um, carbon footprints look really similar. Um, They don't look like anything that actually may significantly change the problem that's presented by uh, the consensus. And somewhere that thing has to be built into uh, some assumption, some sort of uh, mythology that we live around. Like this issue around that we're going to have half a billion people um, on the Indian subcontinent that are destitute. I think that was the figure that gets put forward. So what is it that stops us from doing the thing that, according to rational means, we can say that we don't lack the resources for anybody to suffer homelessness, hunger, insecurity, etc. And I think it's a little bit of this thing of, um, well, I could plant a garden, but first I have to do this. If I could only do this thing first, then I could achieve that thing. And it's kind of like a common theme that um, is, is quite prevalent in our modern society, in the, in the, in the, in the, the discourse around, in, in particular, personal development. So we, the, 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 the general theme or frame is, is around procrastination. So I could be everything that I want to be if I could just do this thing. But I can't just do this thing. I usually put it off. So I don't go to the gym and get fit. Um, and if I did go to the gym and get fit, then I could feel a lot better. Um, I could get rid of my depression. I could sort of stop drinking or whatever it is. But um, I'll do it tomorrow. Or um, And there's even sort of a great series of, of jokes around it. So you sort of hear these people saying things like, why put off today what you can leave till tomorrow to put off, you know, um, so on and so on. And there's, um, there for me, interesting parallels in, in, in the, the, the picture of the greater world and the, the procrastinator um, archetype, if you like, the, the uh, pattern of behaviors. So we... We don't feed all these people. We don't give homes to all these people. We could. Um, It's actually quite doable. But we're just going to uh, solve this other problem first. Just going to take care of this particular thing first. Um, So come up with stuff like entrepreneurial uh, social work. You know, this is uh, the, the discourse very much of the last... 15 years in, in development work, that you've got to 
You've got to help people to help themselves by developing businesses, for example. This is very much USAID, um, you know, most of the, the development organizations are talking about um, entrepreneurship being a uh, uh, saving grace for inequality. And inequality is the stuff that underpins what you describe in Caspian of going to buy a whole bunch of shit you don't need, uh, possibly to impress people that you don't even like. But you very rarely, when you go and buy that stuff, it's highly unlikely that it actually costs the buyer the real cost of the thing, because all of those uh, uh, costs are externalized. They left with the half a billion people in Bangladesh, India, China, etc., etc., who've been doing basically slave labor in order to produce this astonishing amount of stuff that other people can buy that they don't need, that they then throw away, that becomes a mountain of plastic, that ends up in Kenya where uh, kids develop appalling diseases because the mountains of plastic are burnt, or they, uh, you know, etc., etc. You get the picture. We don't do this stuff because we're first going to solve another problem. And I think it has a lot to do with that. There's some sort of balance in the procrastinator uh, habit of, um, I could do that, you know, um, but I'm just going to watch a series. Or, um, and often there's, a, there's, a, there's a, some sort of consequence picture involved where you've got a deadline. So eventually you do do the thing, but absolutely at the very, very last moment under incredible stress um, and possibly uh, uh, deliver something that isn't really of a particularly good quality or it could have been a much better quality. There's a Danish, I don't know what he is, Bjorn Lomberg. Is he a philosopher? Is he, what is he? He's a professor, teacher, author. I don't know. Intellectual somehow. I read a, uh, an article he wrote years ago where he sort of points to what you're pointing to, but for me it was, it just made me mad because he's sort of, he's against climate action. Right? Um, because we have bigger problems to solve. We have the problem of AIDS, of poverty, of hunger, of... So, he, and he sort of lists this and thinks that climate, sort of the climate threat comes, you know, on number 20 maybe, but we should do everything to solve this number one. And what pissed me off about it is that from my standpoint, he's part of the crowd that actually has the means to do, solve these problems. But I fucking don't see it. I just see him pointing the finger to people who are doing sort of things on other um, entries, on, on different entries of this list of things to do. But he's not, I don't see that he is busy you know, getting number one ticked off. I just see him saying, you shouldn't be working on number 20. You should be working on number one. 
That could frustrate the hell out of me. Um, and I absolutely agree with you. We could, we could tick off a lot of these things and we wouldn't have to do them. Um, last minute, sloppy work, yada yada. And I also try not to point a finger at people who are busy sort of addressing different aspects of this because I know that different people sort of get riled up about different things. There's passion for number 20 for some and for number five for some and then it's number one for one and then it's three, seven and ten for, for another one, right? And it's sort of, it has to be that way that, that where my energy goes, we'll do that. Um, but I still think you're right that we could. Um, it doesn't have to be the way it is when it comes to people sort of living under the well, no, but that's, poverty level. That's what we're doing. So for me, yeah. it's it's more yeah. interesting in what's the thing underneath yeah. um, and, and, and what to do from that perspective. So what is the thing underneath? Well, I don't know, but I'm proposing that there is a, um, a mirror image that on a, a global scale, on a societal scale, um, there is a, a, a play out of the drama of an internal saboteur, of a procrastinator. It just doesn't do the thing that's going to help you reach your potential um, because I just had to watch a Netflix series or uh, whatever the case is. Yeah? I mean, we're talking personal psychology here. So, um, yeah, you could reach your potential, but you don't. I don't because I don't do the thing that's actually required. So I don't plan my success, I don't uh, uh, take the call, I don't engage the uncomfortable stuff, um, you know, I don't, I don't make my bed, um, to use Jordan Peterson's phrase, it's like, uh, and because I don't do that, I'm continuously, and this is what I think kind of lies in the structure underneath, I'm in a state of, of, uh, different aspects of guilt and shame and that guilt and shame shackles me to an internal deep trauma that I identify with to such a great degree that I can't imagine a different world. So to move from the personal to the global again, I think that that's some of what is happening is that we don't imagine a different world um, because we are quite shackled to uh, the, the guilt and shame of um, exploitation, of violence, uh, of, of kind of um, rampant abuse that uh, travels along with this fantastic story of innovation and progress and so on and so on. We don't do the shadow side. 
we see them as some sort of unnecessary side effect. They them, you know, the, the poor. So what to do to me, for me seems to me like, um, I think it was Carl Jung confronted with the question of what, what to do about the world, and he said, do your inner work. That's what's required. Um, work with this, whatever form it takes in you. The discomfort of the part of you that's very, very difficult to accept. And it's not obvious because you first have to deal with the fact, I have to deal with the fact that I didn't make my bed, uh, I didn't do a whole bunch of things that I think that I should have done. And each of these layers is just another one of these sort of uh, uh, guilt um, structures that remind of an underlying uh, uh, burden of shame, which in its own turn uh, 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 couples to trauma which in its turn justifies not doing anything. And if we're not going to solve this by policy, which seemingly we're not, um, then maybe a good idea would be to solve it on an inner plane first. And through the results of those inner processes of doing, of processing the, the, the inner workings of, of these global systemic uh, ecosystemic effects that once I start to change my behavior, once I start to change how I feel, once I start to change my perceptions and my thinking about myself and the world, I start to generate a different kind of world and hopefully so does my neighbor and a few other people and then start to generate effects that cascade upwards instead of into failure. That's what I think in any case, for today. Lomberg, Lomberg by the way, is, is for me a really, really impressive guy because he's just so annoying and there's so many things that he's been involved in that are so offensive and then next year he'll write a new book and say, I was completely wrong, that was a very stupid thing to say. I've got a new idea. Um, so he's actually and published it's offensive book, in a different way. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Possibly that's the case. But I mean, he, he published a book called something like um, 50 Climate Actions to Take Now. Really? Yeah, really. Oh, <laughs> I missed that one. I'm so, still hung up on this article in Sydsvenskan, like, I don't know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, 12 yeah, years ago, yeah, something or other. Yeah. Um, but... So, so you were going to add something to mine? Yes, or? I was going to add this thing, because what to do, who to be to start to do that inner work. I, I'm guessing that people who are actually listening to this are. because I have a hard time seeing how you can sort of listen to this <laughs> and not be one of those people. Um, but on the off chance that there is somebody who just stumble into this and goes, what do you mean inner work? What do you mean inner work? Question. 
question to be answered. For, for me? I need yes. to answer this? Yes. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a cliffhanger, I can't wait it's till next It's not time. a cliffhanger, no, just <laughs> shoot. You know, what's the step to take? What's, well, what do you do? How do um, you do? If you're going to do this, you need to learn a method of some sort. Um, you need to uh, understand that this is like playing golf or um, painting or something else. This is an undertaking, um, but possibly the, the most important undertaking of your life is getting in, in to know who and how you are when you really are being you. And probably if you've never done anything like that, you could use some help. You could use a trainer. You could use a coach. Um, you could use a therapist. Um, and it's actually quite simple in its, in its mechanism. The, the, the idea is to simply engage with whatever it is that makes you uncomfortable, what makes you upset, um, what you disassociate from, what you say you are not. Um, these are really good entry points into the parts of yourself that you don't accept. And it is definitely a much more compl complex question than that, but there are those kind of simple levers that take us very quickly into the world of saying, yeah, I really hate Bjorn Lomberg. He's really annoying. Um, and, oh, shit, you know, I'm kind of like quite a lot like Bjorn Lomberg. What am I going to do? And the important things involved with doing inner work is that in working deeper and wider on um, the, the, the edges, the resistances that are part of our, our psyche, um, it makes it possible for us to um, also perceive more inclusive uh, greater vistas, bigger vistas, bigger visions of a world that is uh, inclusive of a greater number of diversities without in any way compromising um, the centrality of your own consciousness. It allows you to take greater and greater responsibility and free yourself from um, what you might imagine other people think. It will free you from the, uh, the restrictions provided by your own background, the cultural, uh, political, socio-political, economic, political uh, assumptions that you carry with you all of your life without even knowing that they're there. So whether you meditate, um, whether you work with a therapist, whether you uh, have some sort of program, have a program, preferably several, preferably interlocking practices. Hmm. Just breathe. Start off by breathing. Try and see how long you can actually concentrate on your own breathing. I'll and, be surprised. And very soon, <laughs> it's like, oh, 
I got distracted. Some sort of um, conversation that I remember entered my head, and I can't concentrate on my breathing anymore. Okay, start again. And then it will happen again, and then you start again, and then it will happen again. And after a while, you'll become better at recognizing when you're losing concentration. Well, there's a gateway. When you notice that thing that distracts you, um, getting closer and closer to getting in contact with that aspect of yourself that is the, the real you, the thing that is the witness, the thing that is without attachment to the identifications that you call yourself I, but that in fact are just conditioned responses to a series of signals that probably um, after doing that sort of inner work for a while you'll come to experience that the signals were just rubbish, silly, like uh, discovering that you bought a whole lot of stuff to impress people that you don't even like. Possibly you didn't even know that you didn't even like them or what sort of feelings those were, those, those experiences were generating in you. And I don't think that this replaces the, the real physical world needs. I really do hope that large institutions, governments, will react that there are um, aid organizations and NGOs and uh, voluntary uh, actors that do go out and distribute um, some sort of relief to, to uh, the most needy. Yeah, that's an important add on if people are starving you need to feed them not just teach them how to grow their own crops sort of you know you need food you need shelter you need the basics One of the accelerants of, of my sort of personal um, self-knowledge, if you can say, is once I st truly started to learn not to beat myself up for the stuff that I found in those murky waters underneath. You know, you stick a finger down, you have no idea. There's something there. It's slimy, it's wet, it nips at you and you throw it out and it looks gross. When I no longer sort of blamed myself for it was when I could stand to look at it, right? Before that, it was just, oh no, that I did not see that one, right? Because I couldn't, I couldn't accept me having that. So that I think is is one of the key sort of. It's almost an on-off switch for me. Once I 
didn't bang myself over the head for that thing that was lurking in the water, but just could see that, okay, here's this thing and it looks horrid, but let's, let's see, what is this? Um, that made a world of difference. Because before that, my entire energy was spent making sure I never did reach underneath there, right? Once I could accept that there was an underneath, I, all of this energy becomes available to me to do something else with. And one of the things that I am doing with it is sort of sticking my head down there in those murky waters and seeing, oh, geez, this thing. Um, at least has me going into resilience and then possibly even having enough energy to go into regeneration, right? Where I'm actually using the energy that I have to, to enable more. Um, which still doesn't hinder the fact that once in a while I stick my hand down there and I get something up and I just toss it immediately <laughs> saying, no, no, not that one, not now, I cannot handle that one, please, something else. Or I go mindless and, and watch five seasons of Vikings in a month or something. You know, 